Matt sent me one or two questions, but I didn't get any other questions. So be ready uh, with your questions. One of the things about wives is because wives are not mentioned with elders in the scriptures. There's very little. In fact, of all the books I have on elders, only one elder shop notes even mention wives or mention anything about wives. And Jack, I'll, I'll give you a quote from that book from Jack Spender. He says that as spiritually mature men, elders may have become one with their wives to such a degree that no separate treatment is needed. Um, so between the interaction between an elder and his wife will tell us a great deal. Are they a team? Do they work together? Is there exercise of dominion by either the wife or the husband? So uh, you can tell a lot about the spiritual household by how the wife and the husband interact. Uh, is the wife in control? Is the husband a um, exercising dominion? Is it a household where there's mutual respect and mutual admiration and they work well together? Um, is a, mar is a marriage um, example of the way Christ loves the church and the church responds to that love? So um, does a wife respond to the love and act as if she respects her husband and the wife and the husband honors his wife? And a lot of times it's little things, and that's why sometimes hospitality is important because when you go into a house, you can see when you're in a house better how they treat. They tend to relax at home, and so you see a better example of how they treat their wives, their children, how their wife treats them, and how their wife interacts. Um, it's important that an open communication between the wife and her husband, the husband listens to the wife, and the wife listens to the husband. So one of the, one of the, a couple, I just want to talk about a couple things. Teamwork, particularly in the area of hospitality. Now, the Elder Shop Notes have a book. One of their books is written by Jack Spender's wife. And Jack's, and it's an encouragement for wives of elders. I don't have that book. I've not read that book. When I um, have started buying books for young elders, I've included that book in the package now because I think it's important for their wives to have that book and be able to... Um, read it oh that was sorry hang on a second my antivirus decided it would open up and act up so maybe that was ticking so london all right um it takes sacrifice by an to be an elder and the wife is going to end up making sacrifices for the assembly for heaven it's time consuming there are times that things are interrupted. There's times when dinner's interrupted. There's times when an important phone call comes in, you have to stop and take it. Um, I have a very patient wife. She puts up with a lot of those things. It, um, it, it, and especially if there's younger children in the home, it means that there's a lot to balance. And so the, a proper wife who works in harmony with their, it, it, with their husband is very, important. In um, Jack Spender's um, comments, he said, a, a, a proper elder's wife should be a Proverbs 31 woman, a woman who's able to function on her own and doesn't need her husband telling her step by step what to do, because there's going to be times where the, where the husband's not available because of his duties to the church. And then I think the biggest thing that needs to probably be talked about with elder's wife is confidentiality. Um, Wives can be a failure of elders in this area. I'm currently counseling a young couple in Dallas, and the reason, one of the reasons they wanted to talk to me was because 
their marriage counseling by an elder in their assembly ended up getting back to the mother of the bride and causing great causing them great embarrassment because they hadn't said to their mother that they thought they needed help in their marriage and um it, she's indian and indians are very performance based culture and so her mother considered her a failure that she was having struggling in her marriage and actually wanted wanted counsel um I personally am very careful what I share with my wife. If I think someone says to me, this is confidential, please don't share it with anyone. I do not share it with my wife. If, it, if it's something that I feel burdened by and I, and I have a desire to share it, then I don't share it. And I don't share it because I don't want to put her in that position where she's gonna be burdened by something that, that's very difficult. I remember I was at Palms years ago and one of the elders took me aside and go, this is totally confidential, but we placed this brother under, under discipline and please don't tell anyone. Well, I never told my wife because it, it put me in a position of, I, I didn't want to share it with her because then I didn't want to burden her with that because it was a very difficult thing not to share because I thought it was something that should have been shared, but having been placed in confidentiality, I didn't want to burden anybody else. Uh, I find when someone says, please don't tell anyone, it's very hard for me to keep it confidential. It's something I do, but it's a hard thing, if you understand what I'm saying. Someone, and someone says, well, even when you counsel someone, don't share this in your counseling session. Because I use, as you know, as I've taught in this seminars and these sessions, I use a lot of examples from my personal experience and what other people have told me. And so when someone says, don't share this, this is not something that should be shared with anyone. It puts me in that position where I don't feel free to share. And people say, well, what do you think's wrong with this person? And I said, you know, I think time will tell. It, it puts you in a very awkward position. You don't want to lie. You don't want to put them off. But if someone's sworn you to confidentiality, you, you can't tell them what was told you. I, I was counseling a, a couple and they called me up. They said, can you keep this confidential? And I said, yes. And, and so I met with them three times, not too successfully because they really weren't willing to change or, or to listen. They just wanted, the wife just basically wanted to call her husband's attention to that. The fact she thought there was a problem. When they had come to our assembly, one of the people who knew them well came to the elders as, and said, I'm very concerned for their marriage. I think it's headed for divorce. So it was like well known to everyone that they had a, a, a troubled marriage. So the lady who had come to the elders and said, they're, they're, this is a tough situation. I think their marriage is headed for divorce, walked up to him in, in, in a Home Depot one time and said, are you getting a divorce? And his assumption was that the only where she had heard that there was an issue was from me. And he got really, he was one of my better friends and he got really upset with me and wouldn't talk to me for about two years because he was sure I'd broke the confidentiality. Didn't matter how much I assured I hadn't broke the confidentiality. Didn't matter how much I could explain that that was her own assumption that she had made without ever talking to me. Didn't help, that was his first jump to conclusion was that somehow I broke confidentiality. It's really important to me if someone says that. It's a burden. It's very hard. 
to remember not to share because I'm a sharer. I use personal examples. I use my past examples. It becomes very difficult. A young man called me from an LA and asked me a whole lot of questions because he's dealing with his elders and they're about ready to put him under, under discipline. And he's asked me for my advice. And um, I had to tell him that I couldn't, I would, I, you know, he said, I said, I'll keep this confidence. And he said, I hope you do. And I wouldn't have called you otherwise. And so it just, it just puts you in a tough position. It's something you then cannot share. And in this, in the couple that uh, accused me of sharing it, I never told my wife. So when, when they accused me in front of my wife, my wife said, he's never even told me why <laughs> I didn't even know he canceled you. Why, why would you think he went around telling other people? I mean, it's just, um, but I, I think that's the way I, um, I'm protective of my wife because I don't want to put a burden on her that I find to be a burden. It, it, you know, how many of you have been asked to keep a confidence? Do you find that difficult to keep a confidence when someone shared something important to you? You don't all speak at once, but if you want to say something, unmute yourself and, and tell me. Tell me I'm the only one who's crazy and thinks that um, that's true. No, I think I think it's hard because it, man is not uh, real good at keeping secrets. And when they, when they have something that nobody else knows, it, it makes them feel more powerful or something that way. I think it is. It, it can be a pride thing in that I know something you don't know, and let me tell you what it is. So it could be a pride thing. It could be a power thing. So. In yeah, my, sorry, go ahead. In my little experience, I think the, the biggest problem is when people tell you things in confidence that become a burden to you and you don't know how to handle it necessarily. Um, and so you feel like you need to talk to somebody, but you can't. That's always been my struggle with a lot of those things, mainly probably from my inexperience and not knowing what to say back. But Well, there are times where you can't do anything about it you think something should be about it, or you think it's something that, you know, there are times that people say, can you keep this confidence? I said, if I can, I will. If I can, I will tell you that it's not something. If someone comes to me and they're involved in sin, I have to tell them I can't keep it confident. That's not, that's not something I'm willing to keep confidential that they're involved in a sin. And so sometimes you just have to tell them it's, it's, if I can, I will. I've counseled young people where I've had to tell them, sorry, I can't keep this confidence. This is, this is something that's mandatory to report. And I have to tell, and I have to let the authorities know that you've told me this. I cannot, I cannot keep it in confidence. So, but there are other times like in marriage counseling or someone comes to you with a problem at the church and they're sharing their heart to you. And they say, please keep this in confidence and don't share it. You just have to pray and you have to wait upon the Lord and you just can't share it. But it, it's, in my, in my marriage counseling, I always do it by myself. My wife is not involved, but I know Ken and Carol Daughters, who are good friends of mine, they can counsel as a team because sometimes a, a woman's touch is very important in, in marriage counseling. And so it depends, uh, again, in what you're doing, but each wife is different and you have to know what their limitations are and what their, and what their experience is, what they're able to do, what their gifts are what what they're capable of doing and then and then you involve them accordingly and so you 
you really have to, as an elder, you really have to understand your wife and you have to know who she is. Now, hopefully there's a lot of uh, growth in the wife because if the husband's apt to teach, his wife should have a lot of spiritual knowledge or should be, or should have um, been taught well and not, and not be ignorant of the scriptures. And so, um, in the end, sometimes you just have to leave it in the Lord's hands and you just have to say, okay, this is confidential. I'm not going to tell anybody. Um, but before we move, and so I don't have a lot to say about wives because there's not a lot, but the wife must be, must be of an equal character because it really is a partnership. And if the wife's character is, is if she's a gossip, if she's, if she's super critical, if she runs people down, if she, if she's a, a very negative person, it will definitely affect the elder's ability to, I think, be an elder. And in the end, it'd be wise not to appoint someone who, whose wife is not somebody who, who can work in partnership or add to the, to the ministry. So okay. before we move on to the past questions, does anybody have uh, comments hey, about elders, wives, or wives in general for elders and, and, um, I know this isn't a lot of in-depth stuff, but I'm just mentioning it to you. Dave Wright had a question. Go ahead, Dave. Okay, Dave Wright. Hey, um, what, to what extent, if any, do you think the qualifications for an elder would apply to the elder's wife? Well, I think a lot of it applies. But to what extent? Well, I think she has to be a quality person because if she's not, so how, how much of a quality person? I don't think she has to be apt to teach. But if she's a controlling, abusive person, I don't think she, she, that the, that elder is going to be able to serve because I question his ability um, to teach his own wife or to, or, or to cause spiritual maturity in his own household. So basically the house, the, the elder needs to rule his own house well. So if his wife is not a spiritual person, then I don't know that he's ruling his own house well. He's not leading his own house well. Does that make sense? Okay, tell, tell me what you think. I think, um, I mean, I don't know. As you say, the teaching's pretty slim on this. So, and I, I've heard you know, very rarely have I heard any teaching on it, if at all, that I can recall. But we do know the two become one flesh, right? It's one body there, right? So I think, and we've spent a lot of time on the qualifications, and I'm just talking, you know, from my thoughts here, but thinking as I speak, the that those qualifications we went over are pretty, should be pretty heavily applied to the wife, I would think. Because I she think, be, you know, yeah. it'd be the situation almost similar to somebody being unequally yoked, right? Where the husband and wife are going in different directions. And how can one oversee an assembly when there's that disharmony in the home, right? And it doesn't have to be outright, you know, like a non-believer type thing. But 
I mean, I, th I think there needs to be some s level of spiritual maturity on the wife's behalf. The, uh, I, had, I had a good friend, um, and his wife told me that every Sunday after church, they went to the mother's house, and his father was an elder. They went to the mother's house for lunch, and she said the mo that her mother served roasted saint at every meal. So she would go through the assembly and pick apart and criticize everybody who was there that Sunday morning what was wrong with them. Um, I would suggest that, and the, and the father allowed that to go on, and I would suggest that that man is not ruling his own house well. So it's a, it's a really fine line because if an elder's not ruling his own leading, and, and in that idea, I, I think of leading, if he can't lead his own household and he has not brought about a certain spiritual maturity in the wife that he's not ready to lead the assembly and bring about a certain spiritual maturity in the assembly. I do agree that they should be one, and so there should be a certain sense of a spiritual maturity about the wife and, and if she's super critical or controlling or, or doesn't work well with others or any of those things, um, I think that it's going to affect the husband's ministry. And as a result, I don't think his ministry is going to be that of being an elder. Uh, similarly, and you touched on this a bit, but what are your thoughts on men counseling women? even an elder counseling a woman? I, I, when I counsel women, and I've done it before, it's usually text um, over, over the internet or my wife will be there with me. I will not counsel someone, I will not counsel a woman by myself. But I have counseled women. I, I, I've, sometimes when I do marriage counseling, I'll, I'll have a lot of time you know, one-on-one -on -one with the wife, but it's either through text or through phone calls. It's never in person. The husband I might meet for breakfast or lunch and do one-on-one -on -one counseling um, in person, but I would never do it with the wife. But yes, there are times that when I'm doing marriage counseling, I spend as much time with the wife as I do with the husband one-on-one. -on -one. Claire, I think David brought up a... Uh a good when he first started to has that question i think he brought up a good point where he says where that you know the two shall be one flesh and um you know even from the beginning when when you know god you know made eve to be a helpmate uh for the husband and to be you know be supportive i think you know i've always thought that you know when, when god calls a man to a certain work certain ministry he calls the wife too and um and so uh and if and if that if there's not that uh, uh, union there, like, like you were just saying, then maybe he's not calling the man <laughs> to the, uh, to be an elder or, or to that, if the woman is not behind him being supportive. Well, if she's not behind him being supportive, if her character is not one that, that would serve the assembly well. So, it, um, so the question is, you know, it's almost a chicken or an egg question. Is it because the elder's not leading his own house well that his, that his wife would cause his ministry to be called into question? Or is it because um, her character has not developed to the point spiritually that it should, and therefore um, 
he should not be an elder. And I would think that it's because he's not ruling or leading his own house well is why his wife and and I've worked with elders who um, it was difficult for me to tell if they were elders under constraint is that they would have preferred not to be elders but they didn't think anybody else in the assembly was available so they do it but it, their wife was often the excuse that they couldn't meet or they didn't have time or they couldn't stay after for a meeting or their their time was very limited availability was very limited and it was and they and they used their wife as an excuse so it's it's hard to tell it was hard for me to tell whether the wife didn't want to make any sacrifices for the assembly or the husband used her for an excuse but in that case it had a definite detrimental effect on our abilities to function because he often used the wife as an excuse for why he wasn't available So I think like we said, there's not a lot on in scripture about this, but one verse that kind of comes to mind when we're talking about women and they're not in a leadership role, but kind of by de facto, they tend to kind of take that is the older women teaching the younger women in Titus. Um, so I think actually when you said, uh, like Dave's point, the qualifications should probably apply to the women. And I would almost tend to say, a good team or household would have a woman. I would think an elder's wife would have that ability to kind of come alongside some of the younger women and, and teach them certain things. I, I I'll tell you when we first came to Palm, well, actually we, we had that, uh, uh, you guys brought pizza and we all sat down and chatted. Uh, one of the things that just sticks out to me so much is somebody asked about head coverings and Linda spoke up after I think David said something and she said we would come along somebody and teach them that like and that to me is a really good quality that would be really helpful to be found in an elder's wife right I, I I'm not I, I don't know that it's absolutely necessary that every elder's wife is able to teach but it does absolutely help if some of the elders wives are able to teach or come alongside. So it depends each, I mean, I think people have different gifts and uh, their gift could be hospitality and mercy and not, and they're, and they're not, and they're a little bit shy about teaching or, you know, sharing, but I think there are, God's usually has provided a good mix in the, in the elders wives so that they can do that. But if the elders wife is selfish um, detrimental to the ministry, then it, then I don't see how that person can be an elder because it, whether it's his wife that's keeping her or because he doesn't rule his own house well, but I think it's a negative that is really a black mark against, against the qualifications. Steve? Yes. Yeah, he's sitting there silent. All right, oh, Steve. I'm here. <laughs> I guess I was uh, thinking of a couple verses uh, out of Proverbs, and they're just kind of general, but um, 31.11 says, The heart of her husband doth safely trust her, so that he shall have no need of spoil. 
just the fact that she's a trustworthy woman, I think is a remarkable quality. Uh, you know that she's not gonna interfere maybe where she shouldn't go. Um, she's always gonna um, seek to do what's good and what's right. Um, it also says in verse 26, she openeth her mouth with wisdom and in her tongue is the law of kindness. So those are two very extremely good qualities to be able to speak with wisdom and, and show them how to do application and so on, um, how to work things out. But she does it in a way of uh, kindness. She, she's not out to destroy somebody, to tear them apart. Uh, she, she has that wisdom to be able to entreat them and get them to do what's right. So in your experience, have you seen an elder's wife be detrimental to the elder's ministry? Uh, I think sometimes they can be uh, domineering. <laughs> um, they could be, you know, maybe condescending in a way sometimes of their own husband. And uh, I don't think that's a good thing. Uh, that's not anything that encourages the husband and and helps them to be a leader is that is that help the husband set an example for the rest of the assembly when that's happening in his own home um you want to run that question by me again <laughs> so so once again it comes back to is it how much of the responsibility is the elder the husband who's an elder bear when his wife is condescending to him, um, not kind at times. I think he should confront her about it and, and, and they should pray about that and work that out together. And if she doesn't have that spirit of, of changing, then uh, maybe, maybe he shouldn't be an elder, I don't know. Yeah, and if it occurs before he's appointed, then it might be true that he shouldn't be appointed. Right. Okay, I, I, I'm. I fear the that the wife of an elder must be a helpmate, and if she's any type of a detriment, then he might not be the person you want to be an elder. Right. Is that as nice as I can put it? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> All right. Any other questions about wives? All right, so let's let's move on um, to the questions that I was mailed. So here's the question I was mailed. I was especially wondering about what you ask about a repentant couple being put out in the assembly when there's already obvious repentance. Also, um, well, let's stop. Let's start there. Especially wondering what you ask about a repentant cousin. So um, in some of my experiences, I had a friend who was an elder and his daughter was gonna get married and like three months before she got married or four months before she got married, she came to them and admitted that they had failed and that she was pregnant. And like they came to the, them and, and confessed their sin and they did not put them under discipline because they confessed, they felt they were repentant and they felt that they, they did announce it to the, to the assembly. They stood up front and confessed their sin to the assembly. But in the end, they did not put them under discipline because of their repentance. So if, if the purpose of 
of discipline is restoration. If someone is repentant and they show the signs of repentance, is there a need then to be punitive in, in discipline? And my personal belief is the answer is no. Your, your miles may vary and you might have a different idea than that. But ultimately, it's confession. So I don't think, um, and especially studying David, and David is a, is a good example of, of repentance and what it looks like. I don't believe that God then said to David, okay, for the next two years, you're going to have to sit back, not participate, and, and um, show us that you're truly repentant. I don't think there's a time element in that. Now, I do also, though, will, will, will say that if someone's a teacher, I think there's a stronger responsibility on a teacher. And I think if they have failed, there needs to be a time where they show that they are walking and living according to what they're teaching. Because nothing worse than is it than have a teacher who doesn't practice what he preaches. And so there should be a demonstration that he is again practicing what he preaches before he's allowed to teach again. Just my thought, but okay. Other thoughts? I don't know who asked the question, but did it is there um another question to follow up on that? Or was there something that you did not understand or you think I'm wrong and you're going to take me to the scriptures and show me that I've, I've failed to understand what the scriptures are teaching. No, I, I, uh, I would say that I would probably have seen it practiced differently, but I agree with what you're saying. Um, and I think it kind of, and you can tell me if this is wrong. This is where elders wisdom of an elder and the elder group, comes into play to understand if somebody is truly repentant. And, and I think that's where we leave it up to those men that have been burdened with that responsibility. Yeah. So David said a great example of that. And then the passage we looked at in first Corinthians last is, is no excuse, no justification. I've sinned. What I did was wrong. What I did was against God. What I did has affected my fellowship with the assembly what I've done would would cause harm to the assembly and to the name of Christ. That's what you're looking for and not, oh, I, it wasn't that bad or, it, you know, everybody does it or, you know, um, it was her fault or, you know, anything that would blame someone else does not take responsibility isn't, isn't really re being repentant. So sometimes there would be a period of, of discipline with counseling till they came to understand exactly what they did and why it was wrong and why what they did and, and why what they were doing needs to be changed or they need to change their habits. I think one thing you see in that instance with David is the fact that there was a time period that continued on after he committed these horrible sins. Um, in Psalm 32, he says, I kept silence and my bones became old through my roaring all the day long. It had to be uh, the prophet Nathan who eventually came to him. Yeah, David knew he had sinned, but he wasn't going to confess it. But as soon as Nathan came, he, con he was confronted with it. And Nathan said, thou art the man. 
and David, while wow, he was exposed right then and there. Now, I, I believe in that once a person's repented, I think they should be restored. But I would like to also qualify that, that God will still deal with the consequences of whatever that sin may be. And that, um, that's in God's hands. But, but I'm just Gal saying we, we can restore them, you know. Galatians says that we're going to reap what we sow. Right. The consequences of our sin, we can't forgive, nor can we restore. Right. There, There's going to be consequences in sin. Yeah. And and that's out of our hands. That's 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 out of our hands. But right. do we add to the punishment then by by being punitive in our discipline? Because I know assemblies that that almost have a log. If you do this, it's six months. If you do this, it's a year. If you do this, it's two years. It's like they have. It's almost like determinate sentencing. They've already decided what your penalty is going to be, and and how long it's going to be. And then I know some assemblies that if you do if you sin and they're put out you're gone there your chance of ever getting back are slim none and, and none left town you know i mean it's slim left town so um there's no active restoration there's no concern about it restoration you're just done as far as they're concerned yeah no and, i and agree it, with you i agree that there is restoration and that's very much needed and uh but i'm just saying that like you said earlier, that God, uh, and we shouldn't add to whatever God's going to do. I mean, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Yeah. I When I was young and we did, and back when I was young, there was people who were disciplined for sexual sin. Um, there was never any restoration or attempt to restore or counseling to go along with that. And that always bothered me. And I see it, I see it today also i see it today also and i see you know so when someone when i go somewhere and and ask about someone and they say they're not here um they're under discipline then i i'll say well has someone tried to restore them but but part of restoration is that they that that they understand that what they did is wrong i've had some people just deny that what they did is wrong and it's very hard to bring about restoration and they and and they usually flee and don't want to talk and don't want to get involved and they've already made a decision that they don't feel they feel justified in their sin and they're just going to go somewhere else that will accept them for who they are you know um sort of idea yeah i do know of a case very close to my heart uh a brother was married and um he was involved in sexual sin and he was confronted about it and uh, eventually he read a letter uh, to the whole assembly and acknowledged his sin but um, in spite of his repentance he continued down the same path and kept repeating over and over again and uh, you know <laughs> I don't know, you think about that verse, how many times do you forgive, you know, but um, when it when it's kind of habitual, you might say, um, that that's a real hard pill to swallow. And, and, uh, well, and, and that's probably the next question, because the next question is also, like clarification, whether one-time event and repentance would merit excommunication. I'm wrong, or was I mentioned that it needs to be a habitual sin. The verb text in, in 1 Corinthians 6, 
mm -hmm. or First Corinthians five, it, the verb text is is um, present indicative, and uh, the idea is, uh, imper I'm sorry, it's an imperfect ten uh, imperfect tense, and the idea of a, a imperfect tense in the Greek is that it's habitual. That is something. That it's so. I've had I've had instances where someone will say, "I think that brother's acting in the flesh," or "I think that brother stood up in the breaking of bread in the flesh," and they go, "Oh, well, well, that's slander. We need to discipline that brother for slander." Well, I'm saying, if it happened once and he's not going around slandering people on a regular basis, and he just said something that you've now decided is slander, then that's not what that is talking about. It's talking about someone who has a real issue in this area to the point that they're calling their their very christianity into um into question hey clay and can so, you just could you just repeat that question i would like clarification as to whether a one-time event and repentance would merit excommunication which is what we sort of talked about or am i wrong or was it mentioned that it need to be habitual sin so there's two different things going on here so a one-time event with, with, with repentance, I don't believe particularly needs excommunication. I do believe that needs to be confessed to the church and they need to do the works of repentance, which is to show they cleared themselves of the matter and there are no excuses. But in the passage, the idea is that this person practices this sin or they're, they're, they're habitually sinning. So if that person who did it once and came in front of the church and repented, and then he habitually does it again and again. Then it becomes a question of, are they truly a Christian since they don't seem to have power over sin and they continue to do the same sin over and over again without, without, and, and at some point, is it true repentance? Have you really cleared yourself of it? Have you, are you really diligent in the matter when you continue to fall into the same sin again and again and again? So um, like Stephen said, I think the seven times seven is for personal offense. We're not talking about sin in the assembly. And that's sort of like the Matthew 18 situation again. We have to be, we have to be able to determine when the Lord is addressing a personal offense and when Paul's addressing sin in the assembly. And I think the seven times seven of forgiving is for a personal offense. And I think sin in the assembly, it's not seven times seven it's it's each individual act is a situation and if you keep repeating like my wife says you you're, you're quick to say sorry but if you don't if you keep doing it i really don't think you're very sorry and she's absolutely right if i don't break that habit and quit doing it how sorry am i and it's the same thing with sin in the church if if you continue to repeat the same sin how how much have you cleared yourself of that sin? How much are you doing the work of repentance when you just keep falling into the same trap over and over again? So I don't know if I'm being clear on that, Matthew, Matt, but um, there, there's a difference between habitual sin that you do it. If someone's a slanderer, they're going to go around slandering people on a regular basis. And yet I've seen things like I shared with you, the brother who was put out when I was like, nine years old and he got upset at one meeting and because he got upset at one meeting and said some things at one meeting they put him out of the fellowship i don't think that's what this passage is talking about it's not talking about a one-time event it's someone who has a real issue in this area and keeps repeating it now i think paul goes on to show that that sexual sin 
is a little bit different because it it ends up to be a union than than these other sins that are listed in First Corinthians five, but particularly covetousness, slander, those are those are more subjective. And then the other thing is, um, there are many sins which are which are bad and are deadly. Um, Theotrophies is a sin that the Lord caused evil, and yet I've never seen anybody disciplined for being a Diotrephes. Peter says, Peter groups, Peter has a group of sins that it's murder. Um, there's three sins. One of the sins is, is slander, and he groups slander in with murder. Now, in my mind, in my way of thinking, I would not, I would not, um, I would not group murder in with slander. You understand what I'm saying? But Peter tells us it is. And so we would be we'd be quick to we would be quick to discipline on murder, but we're pretty slow at disciplining. We're pretty slow at disciplining on other sins. And that that's I think that's a huge, and that's why I try to spend time going over the, um, going over the, uh, the idea that we need to be very careful to use progressive discipline because we tend to have two tools on our belt. One is a hammer. You understand what I'm saying? One's a hammer. And we have no other tool. All we have is a hammer. We have no tools for adjusting, no tools for anything else, just a hammer. It's like you finally get to the point where we can't handle it anymore. We think you finally crossed the line and we just hit you with excommunication. And that's truthfully, in my experience, that's how most assemblies handle it. They, 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 the brothers are irritant, the brothers, but they're afraid of confrontation. They don't sit down with the brother. They don't confront him when he's, when he's out of line. They don't warn him. They just finally get fed up with him and they excommunicate. He crosses them line and they excommunicate him. That's my concern is that we use excommunication as a, as a hammer. We don't practice real, we don't practice real discipline. We just use it as a hammer. That, I, I, that's what I'm trying. I think that's what I'm trying to say. So, um, Hey Clay. Uh, yes. Could you sh shed some light on, uh, Romans 16 verses 17 and 18? All right. Hang on. Let me go there. It has to do with those that cause division. Yeah. We talked a little bit about that oh, okay. last week. I'm sorry. I missed it last no, week. No, no. We talked a little bit about that last week. Um, so now I beseech you, brother, them which cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine that you have learned and avoid them. And I think, I think in, in, in once again, discipline is progressive. You warn them, you avoid them, you don't let them teach, you let them know that their teachings causing division. I used a bad example last, last week because I, I mentioned Calvinism and that was a bad example, but, but say we're, we're, we're talking about something else um, that and that's their pet peeve doctrine, and they're not going to let it go. And they're going to, and they go around from house to house and individually trying to convince people of, their, of that doctrine and that they're right, and that people have to get in line with that doctrine with them. And they're, and and those people need to be marked. 
And then the assembly needs to know that they need to avoid that person and, and not follow that teaching. And that person you would want, want to take a platform and that person, if they teach something that's wrong, needs to be corrected publicly once you've warned him and told him that that teaching is not going to be allowed or it's not, it's not conducive to the fellowship. Except if it's another gospel or it's a doctrine that is contrary to what you understand. So if they come and they teach there's no Trinity, if they teach that there's only one God and, and Jehovah, that Jesus becomes the one God, um, if they teach there's no resurrection, if they teach if they teach something that is absolutely an error, then that you should discipline that. I doubt if they're saved. If they're not following the faith as once delivered by the, by the disciples, I don't think they're saved. And I think then that's not, that's another step. So once again, it depends on what they're teaching. And because you can t cause division just by having a pet peeve doctrine, that's not exactly evil or contrary to scripture. But if you're teaching heresy, that's a different issue and that needs to be dealt with in a stronger level. So it depends on what their doctrine is. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, um, I've listened to John MacArthur a few times and um, it's been in the past and one day I was going down the highway and I turned it on and there he was speaking. And man, he is so strong on Lordship salvation, you almost think you got to work your way to get to heaven. <laughs> I was just like, wow, I don't know how to deal with something like that. And, I, I had a good friend, he, the fires in um, California are right by his house right now. And he's, he's, he's within miles of Master College and, Son, and, and MacArthur's Church. And most of the pastors in that area are graduates of Master's or have come out of the master's program. And he went to one and that pa that pastor found a way to work Lordship Salvation into every single passage that he taught. And he taught that doctrine ev out of every passage that he taught. And you know what? That causes division. And if someone was to come with a Lordship Salvation doctrine, that causes division, in my opinion. And I, and I would no more be more than willing to say, brother, you and I can discuss it all day long, but it's not something you're going to teach. And if you try to get other people to agree with you here, then we're going to have a problem because you're going to be, you're, you're causing division. And the scriptures tell us if you cause division, we need to mark you and avoid you. Hey, Clay. Uh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Steve. Finish. I was just going to ask one other question. Have you come across you know, among the East Indian culture where uh, they think that baptism is required uh, in order to go to heaven, or I have not, but I've run into that. In, I've run into that in jails. Um, baptismal regeneration is what is what we call it—that you have to be baptized and be regenerated. I've run into that in jails and with cults, but I've not run into that in the assemblies. Okay. My wife had a young girl in her Sunday school class, and she, my wife was talking about salvation and trusting Christ as your Savior and repenting of sin and so on. And she says, oh, and you've got to be baptized, too. And my wife had to correct her. 
and that so and that could I don't just know be if that's coming from the home or or what she might have just been confused maybe she was i think she's probably about um maybe 10 somewhere yeah around. so she might have just been confused maybe. that people have told her you if you're saved you get baptized and maybe she just thought that that was okay. part of it okay matt uh, uh my dad had a question his hands raised okay Go ahead. mr defreeze hey good evening question clay um how would how do you feel about uh the testimony of the assembly to the outside neighborhood neighborhood uh community playing a role in whether a person should be put away from the assembly is there well, times when that might be called for ultimately that's 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 i think the passage the pastor says if the if the person's sinning to the point that they're calling the name of christ and the fact that they're a christian into in in their and in, into question that that's the whole reason why you discipline them because you can no longer believe that they're so paul in that passage says if if they're a so-called brother in other words if they're reclaiming the name of christ but they're not living a christian life that's the very reason why you discipline so do you have an example of, of where the neighborhood would be aware of, of that person uh yeah so I have seen a situation where a sin was committed by a believing brother, a brother had fallen um, many years ago, and it was definitely repented, but because of the nature of the sin, um, the outside, the law was um, involved. Um, it made, it made headlines, that kind of thing. He was definitely a true believer. Um, there was no question about that, but because of the grievousness of the sin, um, even though there was restoration taking place for the sake of the testimony of the of the assembly, they felt he should be put away. And I'm not sure if everyone agrees with that. Well, let me let me let me very much clarify that. Is I'm a I'm a firm believer that the that the scriptures teach that if someone um, violates the law, if someone violates the law then absolutely the law must be called in and the law must take be taken care of. I just, um, there was a newsletter. So, um, whosoever we, who, um, from Romans 13, whosoever therefore resists the power, resists the ordinance of God, and they shall resist, shall receive it to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, that thou shalt have praise of the same, for he is a minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is a minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, you must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but for conscience sake, and for this cause pay tribute also, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. So um, there's a, just, just hit the news, there was an orphanage in, in an assembly-run orphanage in, in South America. The director of the orphanage came forward and confessed that he had molested three of the children. In that case, you can forgive him as much as you want. He can be truly repentant as much as you want, but the but the he should go to jail, and he should be and and he should be jailed for that. And the assembly should not try to prevent that 
or get in the way of that. And, I, and unfortunately, I've seen people write letters of recommendation and everything like that. I'm a, I'm a firm believer that if, if you sin, if you break the law and are going to be arrested, that the assembly needs to stand to one side and say, we love you, brother. We forgive you, brother. But you have a penalty to serve because this sin is atrocious. We had a situation when I was a young man. We had a, a um, it was right during the Vietnamese refugee, and we had a lot of them in San Diego. And we had a young man come back from back east, and he was helping in that program. And two of the girls accused him of molesting them. And the elders talked to him, and they put him on a plane and sent him home for his elders to deal with back home. And there are a number of us who were very frustrated and very upset because we believe the authorities should have been called and he should have been turned over to the authorities and let the authorities punish him properly. That it's not just the assembly then involved, it's a law that has been broken. And in the end, now with everything we know about the Catholic Church, that was basically how the Catholic Church handled it. The person would we'd get caught, they'd confess, and they'd just ship them off to a new location where they would repeat the sin all over again. So it, it depends on, I guess my answer is it depends on the sin. If it's, a, if, it's, if it's a breaking of the law where everyone in the community knows that this person's broke the law, then they should serve the full penalty of the law, even if they've confessed, even if they've forgiven. They're excommunicated, basically, because they're in jail, but basically, when they get out of jail, then you can talk to them and try to rehabilitate re, um, them. But I'm, I'm a firm believer. If you cross the line, I do a lot of youth work. And if you cross the line in that area, you should go to jail. If you, if you do something that's wrong, I mean, our moral codes are pretty loose in this country. If we have jail terms for breaking that, um, believe me, you've really crossed the line, in my opinion. That's just my opinion. As you know, I have strong ones. <laughs> and, and passionate ones, too, by the way. There's some things I'm passionate about. And, and violating, sexually violating other people, is, I'm very passionate about that. And I think they should go to jail, and they should go to jail for a long time. Clay? Yes. What if the law says that the church cannot meet? How do we respond in that situation? Yeah, so if they said we couldn't meet over Zoom, we couldn't assemble in any way, we couldn't do anything, then I'd say, well, I think we need to obey God and he's, he, he wants us to meet. If they say, we don't think it's safe for you to meet physically at this time unless you can do it outdoors or do it in a safe, and California is really strict on this, um, I would say I'm okay with that. I don't think it's that's a line that I want to cross, um, go to go to war against the government for. If if um, I I'm talking to a young man and their assembly meets on Sunday, but they don't meet on Wednesday, he would like to see them meet on Wednesday. I told him he needs to pray for the elder and call the elder and not tell the elder what he should do. And and he really struggles in this area. And he called me up because I had a nice talk with the elder. I think I understand. The elder feels it's okay to risk an illness to meet on Sunday, but he feels that we're the less times we meet, the more less chances we're taking. So on Wednesday they could still use Zoom, and they're using Zoom then on Wednesday nights. 
and the, he's, the elder said to the young man, he said, you're being argumentative and something I've worked with the young man not to be argumentative. And he doesn't even realize he does it. And he goes, you're right. People think I'm argumentative. And I go, you are, no wonder, you know, you, you, you it's how you approach it, you know? And um, so he, he, he had a good talk. He sort of heard the elder out. He agreed to pray about it and consider that. So um, what do you think, Dick? That's a toughie. Um, when, when I was a kid, uh, I was um, in my undergraduate work, I was an Oriental Studies major. Uh, I've never been to China, but I knew that the Chinese who met in home churches, when they would meet, they would sing together without sound. It would only be the shape of their mouths where they would look at one another and they would all be mouthing the same song and it gave them great encouragement, but they never heard each other and neither did the secret police outside the door. Yeah, I, I had friends who were missionaries in China and they said it is so oppressive. They are, they are, they've got cameras in every apartment they're they're seeing who come and as missionaries they knew that anybody who came to their house and visited them was being tracked anywhere they went they were being tracked so they had to be very careful that they never went to a house church because as foreigners if they had gone to a house church that house church would have been closed down the next day so they couldn't go to a house church because it, they they were at risk and so the um expatriates the people who aren't chinese they can meet openly in church and they and they don't bother them at all it's the chinese they won't let be but they could never assemble themselves with chinese brethren because that would have been closed down the next day by the secret police so it's it's extremely impressive and yet they risk their life to meet i think there's 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 christians who are risking their life on a daily basis in Iran and Iraq and in Arabic countries. And yet we see people coming to Christ on a regular basis and paying for it with their life. So we're not to that point yet. And I just, it's a fine line, but I actually um, appreciate the fact that we're living now in 1917 when the Spanish flu hit is I, we're we're still having quite a bit of fellowship and quite a bit of being able to assemble in my opinion because of we live in if we didn't have this then yes i would probably say yes we should assemble and that and we have no options i think we have options and i think we're wise to explore those before we say we have to put three thousand people in an auditorium all singing and rejoicing and and we'll see if the other shoe drops we'll see if the lord protects them we were studying um, Kings and Elijah, and I was thinking as Elijah put water upon water upon water and filled the trench, and I'm going, you know, is that what we're doing when we're not meeting? Or when Is that what MacArthur's doing when he's meeting? He's declaring that he serves the living God and the living God. And so is there a fine line between where we're tempting the Lord God by our actions and when we're proving our faith by our actions? And that that's a really fine line, and I think that's pretty personal. And I think you have to make that decision from your own personal convictions. I, I would see it. I was reading Elijah, and I go, I think in my mind, I would be tempting God just 
by showing off by how much water I could put in here. And I still expect him to burn this sacrifice up. Well, obviously the Lord did it. So it, it wasn't from wrong motives on his part. And, and then it's tough to know. I, I mean, I can only judge my own motives and my own motives might have an alternative reason if I was to me. Might be a rebellion against the government. It might be pride. It might be tempting the Lord. I don't know. And I'd have to really search my heart to know that my motives are right before I insist on a meeting. And then I don't know that I could insist on anyone else doing it. So we're kind of getting short on time, but I have a couple of questions for you. Um, okay. Last week you were talking about discipline and could you just kind of clarify exactly how you see it should be carried out? Because it was very, I mean, I can understand where you were coming from, but in practicality, it, I didn't understand it. Well, how it actually I, don't, work. I, I don't, I don't, I think the elders usually end up being involved because someone comes to them with a confession, like what happened with me at the assembly that Ken Daughters is at. We met with the individuals and then when time for action to, to take place, we got, we got the, the men who were spiritual together to talk about it. The men who were spiritual did not agree on the action to take at that point. And they waited five years before they finally took it, before all of them were in agreement that the action should be taken. I think too many times elders act unilaterally. And sometimes um, the situation with the young man I'm dealing with right now, the elders, it's, it's been 18 months they've been dealing with this issue and they are struggling to come with an agreement among the three of them. I think, man, I think they finally came to an agreement, which is why he called me, but they never, they're not going to take it to the church. In fact, they're still keeping it secret from the church. And I just, I don't believe that's right. And I believe at some point, the spiritual people of the church, and you know, those who, you know, attend on a regular basis, those who, who, and sometimes people do it at the end of a breaking of bread. I don't agree with that. I think it should be a separate meeting called for that very purpose to show the seriousness of it, to show that we're going to pray and mourn over it. We're going to ask the Lord to give us direction, and then we're going to present the facts and have the people decide. I, I think it ruins, I, it, if you jam it in after Sunday morning and someone stands up and reads a letter that you're excommunicating someone, I think it's, it's a terrible way to handle it. I think it should be something the assembly agrees to, because I think in that passage in, in 1 Corinthians 5, it's the whole assembly comes together to make the decision. I think it should be the assembly that makes the decision. I don't think it should just be elders. I think it, it, there's a chance that the elders might be right, but if it's a right decision, I think the, the assembly will see it as the right decision. Once again, do elders exercise dominion or they, do they lead? If they should lead in discipline, and they should be able to demonstrate why this is the right decision. And when people come to agreement that it's the right decision, that's when they should act. And if they can't hardly convince themselves it's the right decision, and one of the elders just sort of caves in because he doesn't want, he, he just finally gives up the fight or just says, okay, let's just do it. Then that's where the issues become. And, that's what my fear is, is that, is that they'll act arbitrarily without really having a, this leading of the spirit. 
And if the spirit's really leading, he's not just going to lead me. I'm a firm convinced, I'm firmly convinced that the spirit of God leads the assembly. I think we give that a lot of lip service. I don't see us practice it very often. If the spirit of God's really leading, then I need to, and I really see something that I think really needs to be done. I need to be on my knees praying that God will show it to others or God will, will show other people the necessity of it. If it's my force of will or my just making a pain in my pain in everyone's neck till I get what I want done ends up getting it done. That's not the spirit. That's my force of will getting it done. And that's always wrong in my book. And so I really believe that if God really is directing and leading, I'm not the only one who will have an opinion that it's time to act. And when other people are showing by the spirit that it's time to act, when you act in unison, there is not a division of the body. There's not people going, oh, this, was, this wasn't done in love. This wasn't done properly. Oh, they were just out to get that poor guy. Oh, they just want to make an example of him. I've heard many of those comments after discipline was done in the back room and the elders just announce it. And, and, and that bothers me because I don't think that's the way discipline should be done. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. I, last week I was having a bit of a hard time getting exactly how you were saying it, but that makes a lot more sense. Thank you. Um, I got two more. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, you also brought up, uh, Dave Wright asked about confidentiality and discipline and you, okay. and you said, no, is that kind of the stance? And my always understanding is, is once the discipline has taken place, it shouldn't be talked about outside the assembly and it should just be put away. Did I misunderstand that or? Yeah, and I probably not. I, I probably do not agree a hundred percent with that because one of the reasons for discipline is to set an example. And Paul talks about those who fall away. Those Paul talks about those who have loved the world and left. I think I think that we need to say this is that it's not in a gossip manner, and it depends. But if I'm teaching discipline, I say this person sinned and the assembly came together and put that person out because of his of his sin that's not gossip that is something that needs to be taught because and sometimes and as you know i like i use examples there sometimes you have to you, you maybe don't have to name names but you have to name what took place so people understand that's and that's not gossip and that's not slander in my opinion i know everyone doesn't share that but particularly if the whole assembly has come together to, to recognize that. And, and the other thing is you can't stop rumors. Part of discipline, yes, David, hang on. Part of discipline is to protect people. So you investigate and say, no, there's nothing there. Or you investigate and say, yes, there's something there. We're going to put him under discipline. And this is a warning to everyone else. The discipline really should act as a warning to everyone else that, that, we need to act righteously. Just a sec, Dave. So once the discipline has been taken care of and the person has been restored, we should oh, put it away, though. Yes. If, you, if you've restored them, sorry. If you've restored them, that's it. It shouldn't be mentioned again, in my opinion. Yeah. All right. And Thank I think that's what, Paul, that's what Paul's writing in the Second Corinthians, is that they need to restore and forgive. That's where true forgiveness then comes in, that they've been, they've been reestablished and given a fresh slate. If they haven't sought forgiveness, 
then the fact that they that they were put under discipline is a warning to others. David. Yeah, um, the reason I brought up the confidentiality a couple weeks ago was, um, you know, when, when you make it public like that and, and someone has done something wrong, you do have, I, I don't want to say weaker brothers in the assembly, but people who aren't as knowledgeable as you or whatever, and they're, they're not going to forgive and they're not going to forget. And there's going to be a strain in that relationship where that person is going to be looked upon. And if he speaks or if he does anything, some of those people in the congregation are going to backstab him, start slander campaigns, whatever it may be. How do you deal with that situation? And that's where proactive elders need to step in and, and discipline them or, to, or discuss it with them and counsel them and tell them what, what they're doing is wrong. So, so it, the, the problem is, is that it should be in a, it should be in a, the assembly should come together to discipline. The assembly needs to come together to, for forgiveness. And if you're not, if you're, if, and Ephesians 4 tells us that we're to forgive as Christ forgave us. And if someone's not forgiving, if someone's harboring ill will against a brother who has confessed and been restored, that's something that needs to be dealt with and dealt with in a proper manner because that's, see, that's is what bothers me. It's like, we're more than willing to, to, to discipline for the sin of fornication, but for the sin of backstabbing, slander, having unforgiving hearts, causing division, again, you know, dividing the assembly against another brother, we just sort of look the other way and we don't want to deal with that. That's, that's like, you know, and so one of the things that, that is good to talk about is that an elder has a complete toolbox and a, or a complete tool belt and there's wrenches to adjust and there's screwdrivers to address and there's different tools that you can use to make minor adjustments. The only thing, it's not the only thing you have on your toolbox is a hammer and many elders act like the only tool they have is a hammer and they let something get to the point where you have to hammer it to death in order to correct it. And it's, and that's not right. They're passive. They allow things to go way too long. They're not, they're not aware of who the sheep are. They're not aware of the issues among the sheep. You know, that, that book on the, the, the shepherd looks at the 23rd Psalms is a good book in that way, because he talks about different things that the sheep are that happen with the sheep, like getting ticks and different things like that, that a shepherd has to really know his sheep and be watching them closely so that when those type of things come up, he can deal with them. And that's, that's one of the great errors in the assembly today, I believe, is that minor things are not dealt with when they come up. Minor things are not dealt with when they come up. And as a result, um, they become major things and then you have to use a hammer to fix them. All right, one more. One more. <laughs> this is for this is me and Matt Vanderhart. We're talking about this. Is, so this question is kind of for him, and I had the same one. Appointing of elders. He was asking me about this, so I know he wasn't on. So he would like to know, and I would like to know as well, how people have seen it done. So it's not just a question for you. Oh. Matt was wondering the uh, way it's been done practically um, and from Scripture. Like we, we talk about the Lord rising, raising up elders. Um, but how do you make that step of appointing them? That was one of the questions he had. I'll make him listen to the recording afterwards. 
Well, I think Matt had a good point earlier in one of the sessions where he said that I think it's something that assembly comes together like, like for instance, discipline comes together, they pray over it, they think about it, they talk about it, and then they do as they did in Acts, Acts 6, they, they do what they seem right to them before God and by the leading of the Holy Spirit, especially in this, in this day and age where you have a fairly clean slate and you're going to put me in elders. And so you want to watch who's, uh, who's, who's affirmed by God that they meet the qualifications, that their wife would be a helpmate to them in the ministry, and then you would, you would then appoint them or you would recognize them. We, I don't know, terminology is, is you need to be careful because it's the Holy Spirit who makes elders, all you are is recognizing. The same thing goes though, if someone isn't recognized as an elder, doesn't mean they don't continue to do the work of the elder and be active as an elder. And I've told you that story that when I, when I help an assembly, I'm not an elder in that assembly, I have no influence as an elder, no authority as an elder, all I have is my understanding of the word of God and my ability to teach what I think the word of God says. And I don't think any, and if I was, if I went to an assembly and I wasn't an elder, I would be fine with not being an elder. And I would do everything the Lord would want me to do as far as my ministry goes to continue to act in her manner. And if I met with the elders or didn't meet with the elders, wouldn't mean one iota to me. So it's not easy, um, but at some point in time, it would be important to sit down and, and call a special meeting, get together, pray, consider. Could very well be that some names are going to be put forward there and people are going to say, yes, I would be in agreement with that name. I would be in agreement with that name. I'd be in agreement with that name. And there might be a name put forward and someone says, I have reservations about that name. And in that case, it would say, okay, then we'll move on to someone else. And, and uh, you know, at that point, it's not, well, why not? And the, I think he'd be the best choice. And that's where arguments come in. And, and it's not that one single person can blackball, but if the spirit of the meeting is right, you're not going to say I have reservations about that person unless you have severe reservations about that person. And you're not going to say, yes, I agree with that person unless you really, you wouldn't even put their name forward unless you really trust that there's someone who you really believe meets the qualifications going to serve. That's why this, these classes or these sessions or seminars are really important. So everybody's on the same page as to what it is it takes to be an elder. Anybody else have questions? I asked a bunch now. Danny? No, I don't think I, I do. Um, I know that the ones you just mentioned, the questions you just asked, I, I have been thinking about some of those. So put some of that. But yeah, choosing the right, making sure that when the people that are doing the work are recognized, making sure that we definitely make the right decision and pray about it before it actually happens. 
So if you believe the Lord, the Lord's burdened you to be an elder, you should be doing the work right now. Right. Should be. Yeah, exactly. You should be, you should be doing what the Lord, what you, the Lord would have you do right now. Don't wait to be recognized. Don't wait to, you know, you should be the one teaching. You should be the one, you know, being involved in people's lives. If you see something that needs to be challenged or corrected, be willing to correct it, come alongside a brother and encourage them in a certain area. You should be doing that now. Don't wait. So in Scott. our situation here, I just feel like for us to have it happen in Palms, we need to kind of get back to our normal, back together. And it's going to take a little bit of time before we can see that fruit come forth to where I, we I, see who's an elder and who's not. I would probably agree it's a little bit harder to do it in virtual meetings than it would be when you're right. together and interacting. And because I'm new to some of the some of the brethren here as well in Palms that were there before I moved yeah. over. So. And so sometimes sometimes we have a question, pick up the phone and call someone who you believe is is acting like an elder and ask them some questions and mm -hmm. see what they say and 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 pick their mind on a certain area to see how, and see if they have answers. We're just really not used to that level of communication where we came from, just the same. So I will state that. So that's going to take some time as well, I feel. Well, I tend to be an open type person. And so I don't understand the secrecy that some elders think they need to. Yeah. So Scott's got it. Scott's got his hand up. Scott. All right, Scott. Yeah, Clay. Sorry, I know it's kind of getting late. Um, I had this question back when we were going through the um, qualifications, and I never brought it up, but it may be an oddball one. But when you look at um, the qualification, he must rule his, his own house well. Um, at what point does an elder stop being responsible for the actions of his children? If they're not living in his home. Okay. So no, no age, no age. I, I'd say, I, I'd say if the elder has a rebellious child that will not obey that they need to be removed from the home for the sake of the ministry and for the sake of the testimony. And so if he's continued to live there, then in some ways he's enabling that sin or that rebellion. And then he's not leading in his own house as well. And then he's not, therefore, not qualified. Yeah, and therefore not qualified. In my opinion, that's how I would answer that. Hmm. Do you mind if I ask a question about uh, maybe our situation right now with coronavirus? <laughs> yeah. Um, I was reading in Ezra, and I thought, boy, this is interesting, because I thought this passage just kind of fits our situation uh, you had the enemies of the Jews who wrote a letter to the king and said, hey, these guys are a bunch of rebels. Uh, you shouldn't let them build a, the temple and so on in the city of Jerusalem. And you need to write a letter and tell them to stop going to work on the temple. So at the end of Ezra 4, it says, now when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai the scribe, and their companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem unto the Jews and made them cease by force and power. I almost feel that way <laughs> by our governmental officials. 
he says, then cease the work of the house of that which is at Jerusalem. So it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Right after that, in chapter 5, you have prophets that rise up. And uh, they uh, spoke about, uh, let's see, who were in Judah and Jerusalem, and the name of the Lord, our God of Israel, um, even unto them. Then rose up uh, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and so on. And uh, they gave themselves to the work. And it says, and at the same time came to them, you know, these people, and they said, okay, who told you to do this? And notice that in verse 5 it says, but the Jews, or let's see, but the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews that they could not cease, cause them to cease till the matter came to Darius and so on. So anyhow, here was an edict given by a king who said, I want to cease to work until something is discovered. But then you had the prophets that rose up and the people had a mind to work. He said, hey, we couldn't stop them from wanting to work um, in Ezra 5.5. 5. And the elders supported that. And uh, they, um, they said, okay, we're gonna send a letter to the king because they already had the authority of King Cyrus. Yeah, in that case, in any way to kind of what we're going through today. Well, in that case, they they had a degree. They had a decree from the king to build the temple. Right. So they had the politics actually on their side. Right. And that and we don't have that here. It's the opposite. We have ungodly politics. God hasn't turned the the way of the king towards us, to favor um, us, and so. I think well, we need to be careful. The, you do have the Second Amendment. You have the freedom of speech. Yeah. And so you could, and, and he very well could end <laughs> up taking it to court. Well, I wonder how some of the, I've heard that there are some pastors or whatever out in California who are being arrested because they're assembling together as a church. Well, they've, threat, they've, they've threatened to um, arrest John MacArthur now. As, you know, yeah, right. I knew that. And so that that would be that that would be the risk is that if you're defying the government, you then they could arrest you and then it would go to the courts and then you'd find out who, who was right because ultimately it would go all the way to the Supreme Court and yeah. they would rule. And if they weren't allowing us to meet, if we couldn't meet virtually, I would think that that would be have to be the route we take. Yeah. Okay. I, I just think as long as we meet virtually, we're still meeting. Okay. I might be singular in that opinion, but um, that's my opinion. And I wouldn't force it on anyone else. All right, any other questions? Hopefully everybody has my phone number or my email address and they can text me, phone or email me and I would be glad to answer, talk clarify, muddy the waters more, or whatever it is that I do um, as the opportunity presents itself. Some of this is different than maybe you've heard before, or, and um, if you have a chance, I know David, I think should have the books now. Those books are available. I would encourage you to look at them. Um, Jack, Jack Spender and, and Chuck Giannotti are friends of mine. I think they do a really good job talking about 
some really practical ways that elders can be open, honest, above board, and not practice ruling and having dominion over the assemblies. We're just told too many times in the scriptures that elders are not to have dominion over this over the saints, that I just fear that's a fallback natural default position is for elders to rule at, not at by leading, but rule by dominion. And I don't think it's scriptural. Uh, should we go ahead and close? We are way over time, but that's okay. Yeah. Dave, well, sure. Do you mind closing a prayer for us? Heavenly Father, once again, we're just so grateful that we could look at your truths tonight, Father, that we could open your word. Father, we just, it is our great desire to honor you and to do all things according to your goodwill and to your good purpose, Father. Lord, you know our situation. You know our men's hearts. We just ask that you will reveal them for what they truly are, that your will will be made very plain, Father, so that even the slowest of us can, can be 100% rock sure that it is your will and not our own. Thank you for Clay. Thank you for his teaching. Thank you for all the questions that were asked tonight, Father. Thank you for all the men and women who did participate in this study of elders, Lord. Thank you that we're able to. Thank you that we can meet online on a Zoom and meet it. Thank you for bringing Matt and these young men to Palms, Father, at the exact right time when we needed their expertise in, in the computer skills they have, Father. Thank you. Just ask, Lord, that you bless Palms, that you will allow us to shine a bright light for you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.